Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. It is Whistleblower Week in Washington, D.C. this week, and we have a patriotic whistleblower on who paid the price for doing the right thing. John Kuriaku is a Greek-American author, journalist, and a retired CIA intelligence officer. He was the senior investigator for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a consultant for ABC News. He was also the first government official in December of 2007 to tell the world that we were waterboarding Al-Qaeda in secret prisons. He also turns out to be a man I've known before I knew he was a CIA agent as his brother Emmanuel Kiriakou played guitar with me from 1990 to 1992. John Kiriakou, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us today. Oh, it's always good to speak with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. You must uh, uh, have been as as alarmed and in a way excited about uh, the information that we're coming across this week with the the whistleblower behind the Trump-Ukraine debacle. And uh, give us a little insight into what your feeling is about what's going on right now in real time. Well, I am excited, but, but maybe not for the same reason that most Americans are excited or many Americans are excited. I'm excited because all of the mainstream media outlets are using the word whistleblower freely. They're not uh, putting it on the screen with quotation marks around it, as they did uh, in my case. You know, when I first went public with my revelations on the CIA's torture program, it took my attorneys a year to convince the, the news networks, specifically CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, to stop calling me CIA leaker John Kiriakou and to start calling me CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou. And finally, after a year, after I was convicted, they converted to whistleblower. But then even after that, MSNBC, at least, uh, kept quotation marks around the word. Uh, with Ed Snowden's revelations, it became a mainstream word. And, um, and now with this new CIA whistleblower, I'm glad to see that, that they're using it. And before we get too deep into the conversation, Paul, let me, let me tell your listeners, too, that there is a legal definition of whistleblowing. It's very simple. It's bringing to light any evidence of waste, fraud, abuse, illegality, or threats to the public health or public safety. A whistleblower's motivation is irrelevant. If he meets those other requirements, he's a whistleblower. Hmm. Uh, well, you did what, three years in, in uh, uh, federal prison for? 20, 23 months. What? Yeah, a long, long time. Uh, it is. John, tell, uh, you know, we've had you on uh, uh, twice before, but it was a couple of years ago. So we have new listeners that have been uh, listening to the Wall and Power Radio Hour. And for those that uh, heard the first couple of shows and would like to uh, be refreshed about your history, tell the people out there in Wall and Power Radio Hour land how you uh, became a CIA agent and, uh, and, and your motivations for doing that. Sure. Um, I was in graduate school at George Washington University here in Washington, and I was taking a class called uh, The Psychology of Leadership, in which we had to, uh, as an assignment, we had to shadow our bosses for a week and write a psychological evaluation about them. I was working at a labor union at the time, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, 
And my boss was nuts. And I was actually a little <laughs> bit afraid of him. He was one of these old school union organizers. He had had his back broken by scabs in, wow. a, in a strike. And one of these old school guys. And so I'm, uh, I'm shadowing him. And at one point in the middle of the week, we had an, an argument, and I called him a racist, which he was. And he, he got so angry, he set a stance, and he put his fists up, and I actually recoiled. I remember recoiling, because huh. I thought, oh, here it comes. But instead of punching me, he blurts out, my penis is bigger than yours. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, I quit. You're nuts, and I quit, and I walked out. Well, I wrote this up in my paper, and I gave it back to my professor. And, uh, and a week later, he sent me the paper back and um, gave me an A, and then wrote in the, in the margin, please see me after class. Wow. So I went to see him after class. He, he asked me to follow him down to his office. He closed the door. And, uh, and he turns, and he looks at me, and he said, listen, I'm not really a professor here. I'm a CIA officer undercover as a professor here. I'm looking for people who might fit into the CIA's culture. Would you like to work for the CIA? Wow. And I was recruited. Wow. So I went from grad school to the CIA. John, I just want to jump in here and say my boss is nuts too, and I'm self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that... I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. John, that must have been an incredible moment for you. It was incredible because it really was clandestine. You know, there was so much more to the story. I had to, uh, I had to go to an unmarked office building in Roslyn, Virginia. I was interviewed by a guy who never told me his name. And, uh, and then I had to go to an unmarked building in Vienna, Virginia. I was interviewed by a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and an anthropologist. They asked wow. me crazy questions like, describe your relationship with your mother. Or hmm. have you ever betrayed a friendship? Or uh, was your father the disciplinarian in the family? Hmm. And then they told me uh, to go into the next room and give them some, some hair, some piss, and some blood. And wow. next thing I knew, I was in. Man, oh man, oh man. Now, did they tell you while you're going through these preliminary uh, procedures uh, before you became a bona fide CIA agent not to tell anybody what you're doing. Yeah, I couldn't tell anybody. And I said, listen, I'm going to have to tell my wife because I had, I had gotten engaged the year earlier and, and I got married during the process. And they said, tell your wife, but don't tell anybody else. Wow. And I didn't. I didn't. Well, you know, John, it was so, I remember the night and I believe it was December 2007 when you came out and, uh, uh, and said that we were uh, illegally waterboarding Al-Qaeda prisoners yeah. overseas. And I was watching the, uh, I believe it was, on, I believe I saw it on ABC News. And I saw your picture. And with your name, John Kiriakou, I go, oh, my God, that's Emmanuel's brother. <laughs> I, met, I met you, John, at Emmanuel's uh, uh, wedding in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, along with your lovely uh, family. And it yeah. blew my mind. It was a crazy uh, day. To tell you the truth, I thought that I was just sort of stating the obvious. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it to be this major international story. I was the front page of, of every newspaper, every major newspaper in the world the next day. And, um, 
and it opened up a Pandora's box that I've never been able to uh, get closed again. Let's go back uh, to, because the stories you told on the last couple of shows were so phenomenal. So what was your first mission as a CIA uh, operative? My first overseas mission was to go to uh, Taif, Saudi Arabia, right after the invasion of Kuwait. Most of the members of the royal family of Kuwait had escaped uh, to Saudi Arabia, and they set up a government in exile in Taif, which is um, in the mountains north of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And so I was an expert on the, <laughs> crazy as it sounds, I was an expert on the Kuwaiti royal family. What year was and, this, John? Um, what year was this? This was 1990. So okay. the, the invasion of Kuwait was, was August of 1990. I went to Taif in October of 1990, really to liaise with the Kuwaiti resistance and to try to buck up the royal family and get them ready for war. Huh. And, you know, crazy as it sounds, I was 25 years old. Wow. And I'm meeting, I'm meeting with the king and the crown prince, and then the king is crying. Wow. And the crown prince is, you know, depressed. And then I have to go back and, and report all this. And it's, th- these reports were going directly to the president because he was friendly with the king. Huh. And, and I'm saying he's crying and he's talking about his rose garden, that the Iraqis have dug up his rose garden. He's not making any sense. Like, Jeez. I don't know what to do. Huh. So I tried to befriend the man and try to calm him and say, look, you know, I know I'm young, but I'm telling you, it's, it's not unusual for countries to go to war. It's highly unusual for countries to go to war with us. Right. We've made a commitment that we're going to liberate this country. And I, I had to keep repeating it as a mantra to all of these royal family members. They were just despondent. Wow. And I said, no, no, we're going to get you your country back. Just hang on. Did they know you were working with the CIA, or did you have to have a cover to, while you were doing that? Um, I had a light cover just for travel purposes, but they, they knew I was CIA. I went out there as a CIA officer. Did, did, did you feel on your first mission, and I know, and we're going to talk about that, uh, Al-Qaeda number three that you personally arrested in bed in the middle of the night, and in a few other capers you were a part of. But when you first got into it, you're 25 years old, you must have been, in a way, kind of fearless. I mean, I would think you'd have to be. You know, the only other person who ever asked me that question was my mom. Hmm. Um, and it's a good question. And the truth is, Paul, that you are so busy and you are so focused on the mission that you're really not thinking of being afraid. You're not thinking of the danger. I, I can get into more detail when we talk about Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. But, you know, looking back, I think to myself, what was I, insane? <laughs> like, I should have been, been frightened. I should have been worried about my safety. I'll tell you a story um, if we have you know what, time. I, yeah, let's, let's wait for the, the second part. I just want to jump in you here, bet. John, because we've only got about 20 seconds left in this segment on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. But... Your mother was an absolute delight. She reminded me of my mother. And I got to be able to hump your dad's equipment. He was a great piano player. It was a four-hour gig, and then help him go home at about three or four in the morning. More with John Kiriakou on the Wall of Power Radio Hour after these messages. Alarm on. 
This is your host, Paul Metza. My guest for the whole show tonight, retired CIA operative John Kiriakou. John, at the end of the last segment, you were talking about uh, what it took in terms of being fearless to get into the whole CIA world. Tell us more about that. Through an awful lot of training, right? I mean, when, when, I, first, when I first went into operations, uh, I was sent, the CIA sent me to their uh, training facility in the South. It's colloquially known as the farm. And in the handgun, I took handgun uh, courses and explosives courses and counter-terrorist driving courses. In the handgun course, the instructor, in the very first meeting, he said, does, does anybody here not own a gun? And I put my hand up, and I looked around, <laughs> and I was the only one whose hand was up. And he said, you don't own a gun? And I said, truth be told, I've never actually touched a gun. Incredible. And he said, oh, my God. He says, okay, we're going to start at the beginning. Well, eight weeks later, um, I was decorated for marksmanship. I had a knack for it, just a natural ability. And I actually went into competitive skeet shooting. I was so good. (laughs) Um, But but I had... (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) I had good teachers. And then they moved you from there into explosives. Uh, and then from explosives into lots and lots of driving courses. So when you go over let's, 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 let's hear about these driving courses. Yeah. Yeah. They send you out to, uh, to the desert north of Las Vegas. And um, you, know, you, start, you start in small towns. You move to cities. And you do these, uh, these exercises on ranges that the CIA either owns or contracts. And you're crashing through roadblocks. And you're crashing through, you know, through, well, I, I probably shouldn't say exactly what you're crashing through, but right. you crash through a lot of stuff right. to the point where I actually got injured and I had to have my knee replaced. <laughs> um, but this is serious crashing, right? I guess so. And yeah, yeah, I've got the nasty scars to, to prove it. Uh, and then they send you out to the desert in, uh, in Nevada to do the, uh, the counterterrorism part. So they teach you how to, you know, drive in sand and drive over dunes and how to get out of a dirt road village when somebody's trying to kill you. And, you know, you internalize it, Paul, and Mm -hmm. it becomes a normal part of your, your way of, of living. And so you're, you're overseas in these dangerous areas, or in some cases, what are called denied areas, places where Americans aren't really supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you're driving like a normal person because you know that if if it hits the fan in one split second, you're going to fall back on your training and you're going to be able to get out of there. Now, I have to think, though, when you're over in the States training, knowing nobody, uh, no bad guys were chasing you, driving through the dunes, driving really fast, doing the sharpness must have been kind of fun for a little bit. You know, it's, it's fun, except you do a lot of vomiting. Like, you know, <laughs> okay, when it's not well, your turn that. to drive anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's not your turn to drive anymore, so you get in the back seat while your buddy can drive, oh, and okay. boy, the windows better be open. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sounds, sounds like something in the 70s when I was coming home from rock concerts, but anyway. Um, so, uh, you get all this training, so how long does the training uh, routine last? Well, it depends. If, if you go into operations, as soon as they hire you, it lasts about 18 months. Okay. Uh, for it's the a long time. It, it lasted about a year. Yeah. It's a, it's a long time. I didn't need the whole CIA 101 course because I had already been in the CIA 
as an analyst for seven years before I switched to counterterrorism operations. So I knew what the CIA did. I know I knew who did what and what offices handled what issues. I didn't need to do all that stuff. I just needed the hands-on operational training. And I'm glad I did because when I finally got to, to Pakistan, it saved my life. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit because that's an incredible story. You've got a couple incredible stories. Uh, concerning uh, handguns and bad guys. But uh, so what was, as a CIA analyst, what did that entail? Yeah, you know, it's pretty simple. You, um, you become the expert, the U.S. government's leading expert on an issue. And you sit in a cubicle in Langley, Virginia, and think the big thoughts, and you write papers for the president, the secretaries of state and defense, the national security advisor, and then you sort of jet around the world as your expertise is needed. Wow. Um, I, I had the curse of, uh, of speaking Arabic. Hmm. And so uh, I was rarely needed in London and Paris and Rome. I was usually needed in Yemen and Sudan and lovely vacation destinations like that. <laughs> when did you uh, learn to speak Arabic? Um, the CIA taught me to speak Arabic. Um, let's see. I started in 1993. I did I did a year uh, at a at the CIA language school, and then I went to Tunis to learn uh, Gulf dialect Arabic. And then hmm. I spent two years in Bahrain. Um, as it, it's a little tiny country in the Persian Gulf, just off the coast of Saudi Arabia. Same size and same population as Pittsburgh. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I was the head of the U.S. Embassy's economic section there. Well, it must have kind of worked for you being a Greek-American with kind of olive skin and dark hair. You kind yes. of had some of those qualities yes, of, of those people. So, uh, so blending yeah, I, in I have was the easier. ability to blend in. Yeah, I could blend in in a lot of places around, around the world. Hmm. So when did, your, uh, when did you start being the analyst, and how long did that take before the counterterrorism? Uh, I, I started as an analyst, and um, and I did that. Uh, let's see, from 1990 to 97, I went into the counterterrorism operational training in 97 through 98, and then I was in Greece from 99, uh, from 98 to 2000, uh, doing counterterrorism operations, and and that was that was trial by fire, or I should say, baptism by fire, because. People don't realize or didn't realize at the time, Greece was one of the most dangerous places in the world to mm-hmm. be an official American. We spent more money on on security and counterterrorism in Athens than we spent in Beirut. Hmm. Uh, there was a, a group called Revolutionary Organization 17 November, which had killed our station chief, two of our defense attaches, a couple of soldiers. There was an associated group called Popular Revolutionary Struggle that killed dozens and dozens of Greek policemen. Hmm. And, um, and they targeted the American embassy as well. And that was, uh, that was the first attempt on my life was in Athens. I had to be evacuated wow. in August of 2000. And that particular, uh, I know you're very proud of your Greek heritage. That must have been a fighting. It's hard to take. Uh, yeah, it's hard to take, but it must have, must have been a very personal Oh, boy, Thing was it? Yeah, it was very personal. Because, you know, I've been to Greece a million times before being assigned there. And you go, and, and the beaches are beautiful, and the islands are beautiful, and the food is great, and the people are friendly. But when you're living there as an official American, especially as a CIA officer working 
on uh, on terrorism issues. Uh, it's a completely different world. Uh, you know, I, I was specifically working against this group 17 November. That hey, I John, hold on for one second. Yeah. We've just got a, a few seconds left in the second ah. uh, segment here. We've got John Kiriakou, retired CIA agent on the air, and uh, I want you to continue that story working in Greece, and then we got to get to Pakistan, and then when yeah. things get really nuts. John Kiriakou, I'm Paul Metz on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Back in a bit. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzett. My guest for the whole show is a man who has a storied history working with the CIA, spent some time in prison as a whistleblower, and happens to be a very good friend of mine, John Kiriakou. At the end of the last segment of the Wall of Power Radio Hour, you were telling us about uh, working against a particular terrorist organization in, your, in, in Greece. Right. It was called Revolutionary Organization 17 November. And uh, What is 17 November? A, what, does that, what does that signify? Ah, uh, yes. On the 17th of November, 1973, uh, the military junta that ruled Greece at the time drove tanks onto uh, the grounds of the university there, the Athens Polytechnic University, and opened fire on unarmed students. Hmm. Uh, the government says they killed 38 students. The students say that more than 500 were killed. And um, it was that event that led to the downfall of the uh, of the military government and the reinstitution of of a democratic government in Greece. Hmm. November seventeenth so, is also happens to be the uh, 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 birth birth date of one of the greatest electric blues guitar players of all time, who became a friend of mine, Hubert Sumlin, who played guitar with Alan Wall for years. But that's. Uh, uh, Beside the point, <laughs> but, <That's> the <laughs> but I remember when you said November 17th, I go, oh yeah, that date uh, reminds me of something. But anyway, uh, back to John Kiriakou. So I had a, a, a new neighbor move in, uh, sort of catty corner from, from me. He turned out to be the British defense attache. He was a brigadier general by the name of Stephen Saunders. And a, a couple of weeks after he moved in, we were at a dinner party together, and he was jokingly making fun of me because I drove an armored car and I always carried two guns, one on my ankle and one in a holster under my jacket. Hmm. And so he was making fun and he said, you Americans, you're so obsessed with security. He said, look around you. This is an EU country. It's a NATO country. What are you so afraid of? And I said, semi-jokingly in response, you Brits, Live in a dream world if you think that because they have palm trees and pretty beaches, they're not going to kill you. Right. Well, you know what? If they have the chance, they're going to kill you. Wow. And two weeks later, they killed him. Oh, my uh, goodness on, gracious. On the way to work. Holy yeah, cow. He was, yeah. I was a quarter of a mile behind him in my car. I didn't see it happen. But I was able to, to report on, on the aftermath from traffic. That's a, that's a long story. We'll, we can talk about a different time. But the reason why this affected me directly was because whenever, November, whenever 17 November would do a hit, they would leave a, uh, a, a manifesto or a communique either at the site of the hit or they would hide one and then call a friendly newspaper and tell them where it is. Wow. Well, they left one at the site of the hit. 
And in it, they said, it means we saw the big spy, but we knew that he was armed and he was in an armored car. And we elected to carry out the revolutionary sentence on the war criminal Saunders. Well, as soon as they released this, this manifesto, my boss called me and he said, hey, they were after you this morning. I said, what? I said, no, my tradecraft is excellent. I said, I have eyes on the back of my head. He said, no, they knew your car. They knew you had a gun. They were watching you. He said, you have to get out of here. Man, I get oh, to the man. embassy, and, um, and they were waiting for me. My, my colleagues were waiting for me. They put me in a different armored car. Another armored car went up and picked up my wife and two sons. We met at the airport, and we were on the 12 o'clock flight to New York. Hmm. And then the embassy went and packed us out. I don't know how they... I don't, I, unless they were watching Saunders and stumbled onto me, I, I've never been able to figure out how they were able to find me because I really was conscious of my personal security. But it was a close call. It was, it was one of two attempts on my life in my career. Number one, it must have felt great to get back with your family safe and sound on American soil. Well, my wife left me in part because of that whole incident. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was home uh, on American soil so I could hire a, uh, a divorce attorney. And that's, <laughs> that's the way it was working out. I don't mean to laugh. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you, John. You know, people well, ask. Well, you know, she. Go ahead. She said, listen, I, I can't live like this. Yeah. This isn't a normal life. So right. she said, I'm going back to Ohio. I'm taking the kids. Wow. And that was the end of it. You know, people, uh, they ask me, they go, Metz, have you ever been married? And I said, no, but I've never been divorced either. <laughs> so There you go. There so, you go. So, you know what? There's something to be said for that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, I live uh, vicariously. I've got great nephews and nieces. So what I'm missing in family, I enjoy with uh, my friends like you uh, and uh, that have successful kids and lives. So uh, I, I lead a full life that way. John, tell us about the second time, the second uh, attempt on your life. Well, um, a friend of mine who was a station chief in a Middle Eastern country uh, emailed me one day. We, we have a classified email system at the CIA. And he said, look, we've recruited a guy, and it turns out he's a double agent. Hmm. And it's too dangerous for my people to meet with him because he doesn't know that we know he's a double agent working for one of our greatest uh, enemies in the world. He said, could you pretend to be me and come out here and handle this guy? Hmm. And I said that I could. It sounded like an exciting prospect, something they totally say, different. Yeah, but when they say handle, what exactly do they mean? So handle means meet with the guy, extract intelligence from him, but all the while, don't tip him off that we know that he's really not working for us. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of... Oh, there's a lot of security and counterintelligence that goes into this. Counterterrorism was my specialty, not counterintelligence. So this was a real learning experience. And it, it ended up resulting in me becoming the chief of counterintelligence for the CIA's counterterrorism center. Anyway, that's a, I, I digress. You're a badass, so, John Kiriakou. Let me tell you that right now. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. It was a crazy life. Yeah. So I, I fly out to the Middle East. I actually made 25 trips to the Middle East. In the, in the year after the September 11th attacks. And um, I would meet with this guy, and I would give him instructions and task him, and, and he would give me intelligence, pass me intelligence, and then we would, we would follow him. 
with a team of, of uh, surveillance, and they would follow him right back to this enemy country's embassy. And so finally, uh, our friends in Maryland told me that they were on to me. And, um, and I was really, really careful again, but there was nothing I could have done about this. This was inevitable. They were going to figure out that I wasn't who I said I was. And they said to him, look, we know who the CIA station chief is, and it's not him. <laughs> so he said, well, what do you want me to do? And they told him, we want you to kill him in the next meeting. So oh, wow. I got a cable from headquarters, and they said, abort the operation. And they told me why. I said, absolutely not. I said, this guy's afraid of his own shadow. He's not going to kill me in the next meeting. <laughs> I said, I can take him down before he even realizes what's happening. <laughs> wow. And this became a back and forth between headquarters and me. And, and the station was very supportive of my position because they had invested so much in the operation. So I said, look, every hotel room in the world is the same. You walk in and the bathroom is right there by the door, right? And then farther in is the room is the bedroom. So I said, let's just get two rooms that are connected. We can have our liaison friends in the next room. I'm going to leave the door open. So when the guy knocks, I'm going to say, come in. I'm going to be in the bathroom. He comes in. I'm going to take him down. The other Arabs are going to bust through the side door and everybody's going to be happy. So except, except that guy. Except that guy. <laughs> and boy, he wasn't happy, Paul. Let me tell you. So sure enough, this enemy country, they have six officers doing surveillance in the lobby. We had four doing surveillance in the lobby, so they're all staring at each other down there. <sighs> and, um, and he comes up to the, to the room, and he knocks on the door, and I said, come in. And he comes in, and I dart out of the bathroom, and I just tackle him, and I take him down. I wrestle the gun away from him. He was trying to get the gun out of his waistband, but I got the gun, and my Arab colleagues came in from the side and I'm sitting on this guy and he's swearing at me. And I said, did you think I was so stupid? Did you think <laughs> I was such an amateur that I didn't know that you were coming here tonight to kill me? I said, what's the matter with Incredible. you? Shame on you. Show some respect. <laughs> yeah, oh, do you know who you're swearing. talking to? <laughs> he's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my Arab co colleagues uh, gave him a shot, and he was out. We wrapped him up in a sheet. We had an ambulance waiting. We took him out the back door as a dead body, because people die in hotels every day. Sure. And, and what you do is you just wrap him up, you put him on a gurney, and you take him out the back. Right. That's what we did. Well, when he woke up, he was, he was tied to a chair uh, and cuffed behind his back in the chair in this country's intelligence service. Hmm. And I said, now... It's time for you to start talking. <sighs> and so um, the, the enemy country, they, they never figured out what happened to him. Wow. Because they were all down in the lobby waiting for him to come back out after he killed me. <laughs> and he never came back out. Incredible. John Kiriaka, this is so... You describe these uh, stories in such detail. I could see them in my, my mind's eye, and it's, it's like, uh, <laughs> man, there's got to be... I hope you're working on the, uh, uh, the film script for your life because this is really... <laughs> you know, the funny thing, Paul, what a tough industry. I sold the rights to it three different times, to Universal, 20th Century, Fox, 
and Paramount and all three let it lapse because they said that there was so much detail and there were so many stories that they just couldn't cram it into two hours. Wow. Well, you've got to, uh, you've got, yeah, I'm sure. Well, it should be, you know, think, I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. You should think Netflix, you know, with these series, that, yeah. you know, six, eight, ten episodes. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, thank you. John, thank you. Uh, before we get to the last segment here, we got a, uh, about a minute and a half left. Tell people how they can uh, uh, follow you, uh, get your books, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, uh, John Kiriakou, K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U. Also, johnkiriakou.com. I've got um, uh, the only existing hardback copies of my first book, which, which did well. It made number five on the New York Times bestsellers list. And uh, there are a lot of great stories in there. That's at johnkiriakou.com. Um, yeah, so otherwise, I'm pretty much on all the social platforms. And you have a radio show, too, right? I do, here in the Washington, D.C. area on, uh, let's see, 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. It's called Loud and Clear. Uh, by the end of the evening, it's also up on uh, iHeartRadio, uh, Spreaker, uh, iTunes, Spotify. Cool. Loud and Clear. You know what, Jen? I was in uh, Memphis for the Blues Awards as my buddy uh, Willie Walker was nominated for five or six Blues Awards, and I was standing on the corner of the Lorraine Motel wow. and talking to this, yeah, what an, that, that's a whole show right there, that experience. Yeah, I, I made that pilgrimage once, too. It's incredible. But I was uh, speaking with this uh, gentleman and his uh, girlfriend or wife. He was a guy named Chris Plant. He's a right-wing talk show host in D.C. You ever heard of him? No, I don't know him. Yeah. Anyway, huh. we don't need to give him any more uh, props. More with John <laughs> Kiriakou after these messages. Let it all go, set it all free. You let the whole wild world see exactly what is going on. Exactly who's looking on. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. My guest and friend on for the whole night tonight. It's just been a fabulous show. I'm so enjoying enjoying it. Retired CIA operative John Kiriakou. Now, John, you told the story in one of our last shows. We've had you on twice, but it's such a dynamic story. I'd love to have you tell it again when you got uh, when you got Al Qaeda number three out of bed at gunpoint in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, indeed. Uh, it was late March of 2002. I was the chief of counterterrorism operations for the CIA in Pakistan, and uh, we got word that Abu Zubaydah was somewhere in Pakistan, and we had to catch him. Um, but the, the problem there is Pakistan is the size of Texas, mm -hmm. and it has, it has 180 million people in it. And you can't just say he's somewhere in Pakistan, go <laughs> catch him. So it took me about six weeks before I was able to finally narrow it down. I, I asked headquarters to send in a, what's called a targeting analyst to help me. Uh, you know, I told you earlier that as an analyst, I was thinking the big thoughts and writing papers for the president. A targeting analyst has a completely different job. 
His job is to just go through through metadata, reams, reams of data, sometimes thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of data to, fi- to try to find somebody, to try to, to geolocate them, usually so we can either kill them with a drone or snatch them with a, with a SEAL team. Huh. So um, we brought in uh, one of the best targeting analysts in the CIA, who happened to be a friend of mine, and um, he worked on it for several weeks, and then finally he came to me and he said, look, I can't narrow this down to any fewer than 14 sites. He could be in any one of these 14 sites. I don't have any idea which one it is. Well, we had never done more than two raids in one night before. You know, you break down the door of two places simultaneously, you grab everybody inside, and then you interrogate them. And how many, let me just ask you quickly, John. So when you do something like that, how many uh, Navy SEALs or, or CIA operatives or how many people are on a mission like that at one time? On on a normal mission, if you're if you're hitting one target, it's one CIA officer, uh, maybe two, uh, one or two FBI agents, and then as many people as the Pakistanis want to bring. And and the Pakistanis always brought a, a whole party to these things. Mm-hmm. So five, six, eight Pakistani special forces guys. But then for this thing, fourteen sites. I I cabled headquarters and I. And I need a lot of stuff. I said, I need guns. I need ammunition. I need night vision goggles. I need secure communications. And I need, well, several million dollars in cash hmm. because there are a lot of people that are going to need to be paid off. Hmm. So um, most importantly in that cable, I said, I need, a, I need a big team. So they sent me 36 people on a chartered 737. It, uh, it landed the next day, half CIA, half FBI. We divided everybody up, and we decided we're going to hit every single one of these places at exactly 2 a.m. So we reconnoitered at, the, uh, at a safe house I had purchased, and, um, and around 10 o'clock I stood on the, on the coffee table and I said, listen, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, we're going to have to synchronize our watches. So we synchronized our watches, and um, you know, there were some chuckles. And I said, here's what we're going to do. 0130, everybody leaves their safe houses. 0145, be in place. 0150, make sure you have direct line of sight and you're ready to go. 0158, get out of your car at exactly 0200. Break down the door. We had battering rams. I said, grab all the men and separate the women and children from the men. So... To make a long story short, that's what we did. Now, there was one of these sites in particular where we couldn't break down the door because it was a steel-reinforced door, like mm-hmm. imported from Germany. So we worked on that doggone door for 20 minutes, and I could hear it in the distance. I was on the roof of the, of the safe house, and I said to a colleague <laughs> of mine, that's not good. And then we heard shots fired. I said, well, that's definitely not good. So we jumped in a car, we drove over to the site, and it was chaos. So I said to one of the Pakistanis, I said, what happened? And he said, we got him. We got your man. And I said, where is he? And he points to this guy who's like, he looked to me to be dead. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, well, that doesn't look anything like the, the guy we were looking for. The Pakistanis never knew who the target was. We were afraid they would, they would leak it to him and help him escape. Mm-hmm. So we only called him the Big Fish, and that became Mr. Fish. So he said, this is your Mr. Fish. And I said, that's definitely not Mr. Fish. So I called the analyst. I said, listen, 
they shot these three guys. One of them's dead. One of them is almost dead. And the other one is screaming his bloody head off. I said, what do I do? And he says, give me a, a picture of his eye. I'll run a retinal scan. Hmm. So I shouted at him, Iftahayunek, open your eyes. But his eyes were rolled back in his head. And like I say, he was so severely wounded. He, he was really on the brink of death. Right. So I said, he can't open his eyes, and I can't get him get his eyes open. They're rolled back in his head. So and John, said, we've got about one. We've got ear. about one minute left. So keep. But yeah. tell the story. Just give give me a picture of his ear. So I got a picture of his ear. Sent it to the embassy. The embassy sent it to headquarters. It was him. We put him on a plane. Two nights later, he went to a secret site, and he's been locked up ever since. John Kiriakou, that was one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And I have to say, after five and a half years of uh, interviewing great people with great stories on the Wall of Power Radio Hour, you just jumped with that story the way it was told to the top of the list, my brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's a, it's a real pleasure. No, it's, it's been great, John. I, need, I want to ask you uh, one question here with the minute we have left. I have a friend of mine that served in the Vietnam War. And when he got back, and he was in the middle of everything, of fighting and all kinds of dangerous stuff, his life back in the States, though he was safe and sound, he missed the thrill yeah. of what he was going through. Did, did, have you ever had that, those sort of feelings? Oh, oh I still miss the thrill. I, I think about it every single day. And I resigned from the CIA 15 years ago. And I still think about it every single day. I miss it very much. For all of you out there in the Wall of Power Radio Hour land, check out John Kiriakou, his story. Uh, the 20-some uh, months he did in the prison for doing the right thing. He's one of the great American patriots. A really great guy, as you can tell from this interview, uh, intelligent and balls the size of Mexico. John, thank you so much. And uh, Oh, it's always great to speak with you. And you have a wonderful weekend, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Fantastic, Paul. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brett Johnson, and we'd like to thank our guest, John Kiriaka. What an exciting show it was. I've got a bunch of shows myself coming up celebrating my 40th anniversary in town, culminating with a big show, Skyway to Hell 40, at the Parkway Theater on December 23rd with a bunch of my favorite musicians. Go to paulmetza.com for more info, and like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.